What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Dr. King, over to you. I am appealing to men and women of God and goodwill everywhere, white, black, and otherwise. If you believe all are created equal, come to Selma. For a figure as monumental as Martin Luther King Jr., it's a little surprising that the movies have largely shied away from portraying him on screen. That changes in the high-profile new film from director Ava DuVernay, Selma, with British actor David Oyelowo as MLK. Our review of Selma, plus this week's top five historic events on the big screen. All that and more. Fargo's based on a true story, right? Mm, So is The Big Lebowski. (laughs) Ahead on Film Spotting. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com film. I'll have a really good movie-related audiobook recommendation just a bit later in the show. We're also brought to you once again by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it, so you have 30 wonderful new films to enjoy, all for just $4.99 a month. And when you use their mobile app, you can download films to watch offline. Film spotting listeners can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash film spotting to redeem now. That is Mubi, M-U-B-I. Along with Takeshi Kitano's Outrage and Takeshi Miike's 13 Assassins, they're currently playing Detour, a feverish noir classic presented in partnership with San Francisco's Noir City. And coming soon, these are movies, Josh, starting this Saturday, January 17th. Lodge Kerrigan's Keen, starring Damian Lewis, Abigail Breslin, and Amy Ryan. Boccaccio 70, an Italian omnibus film, Listen to this lineup. De Sica, Fellini, Visconti, Monticelli. Not bad. Not bad at all. That's to pay tribute to the recently departed Anita Ekberg, who here riffs on her iconic La Dolce Vita role. And finally, a perfect fit with a masterpiece like La Dolce Vita. And I mean this. Lynn Shelton's Hump Day. Oh, yeah. Kicks off a 10-day Sundance retrospective. Hey, Hump Day gets the film spotting seal of approval. It does. Again, try Mubi free for a month by going to Mubi.com slash film spotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash film spotting. listening to film spotting with the future of humanity depending on us josh and i are recording this show from inside a time traveling telephone booth in order to compile this week's top five historic events actual events from world history as depicted on the silver screen that's a doctor who reference right (laughs) we did sneak that in there is it is it uh telephone booths or is it police box i don't want to get in trouble with the whovians that we both live with (laughs) good call there that top five and more later in the show But first, I have a dream, Adam, of a biopic that goes beyond worshipfully lionizing its central character. Does Selma deliver? He's got supporters. Detroit, New York, Los Angeles, inciting large-scale arrests and sympathy marches. I'm very aware of that, Mr. Hoover. What I do know is he's nonviolent. What I need to know right now, what's Martin Luther King about to do next? Mr. President, Dr. King is here. 
Mr. President. In the South, there have been thousands of racially motivated murders. We need your help. Dr. Kane, this thing's just gonna have to wait. It cannot wait. You got one big issue, I got 101. Selma, it is. Here is the next great battle. Selma's the place, and they read it. Dr. King! I tell you, that white boy can hit. Forget awards season, we might as well just rename this time of year biopic season. Stephen Hawking, The Theory of Everything, J.M.W. Turner from Mr. Turner, which we discussed last week on the show, Alan Turing, The Imitation Game, Chris Kyle, An American Sniper, Louis Zamperini, Unbroken, now Martin Luther King in Selma. Unfortunately, potential for golden statuette success rarely seems to coincide with artistic success, at least to us snooty, cynical film critics. Josh, I've had a few years now sitting across from you. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you go into a biopic with more skepticism than you do any other genre. Am I right? Yeah, that's probably fair. I I wish I wasn't like that, but that's the truth. Okay, so my take, too often biopics are guilty of the three eyes. Too inflated. Moments, scenes, exchanges, burdened with a heightened sense of importance. You mentioned worshipfully lionizing its central character. Too inspirational. I think your first impression comment about the theory of everything sums this point up nicely. You wrote, Josh, I won biopic bingo when Redmayne's Hawking received a literal climactic standing ovation. See, they bring the snide side out of me, <laughs> don't they? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Too insipid, full of armchair psychology that offers neat explanations for what drove the central figure. And, you know, let's make it four eyes, Josh. Why not? Too immense. Most biopics simply try to cram in more life than a good two-hour movie will allow. It doesn't have to be this way, though, Josh. In his four-and-a-half-star review of Selma on Letterboxd, film writer and longtime film-spotting listener Max O'Connell laid out six essential biopic rules, the keys, as he put it, to make a non-ossified biopic about an inherently noble cause slash person. Do you have your pen and paper ready? I am jotting this down. Please take notes. Number one, focus on one small part of the character's life. Selma refrains from trying to cover all of MLK's altogether too short 39 years as a preacher and civil rights leader. Writer Paul Webb and director Ava DuVernay concentrate on the 1965 Selma to Montgomery voting rights marches. Number two, focus on the backroom deals, the horse trading, the deal making, and the compromises needed to make progress. Selma certainly has plenty of procedure, whether in the halls of Lyndon Johnson's White House, the office of Alabama Governor George Wallace, or the church basements where King and his fellow activists congregate to discuss strategy. Number three, cast an actor who's as good a listener as David Oyelowo, who's commanding without ever feeling pre-bronze because he's constantly leaning in to what everyone's saying and weighing information. It's true that for all of his rhetorical eloquence, Oyelowo's king spends almost as much time deliberating as he does instructing or speechifying. Number four, on top of that, get someone like DuVernay to direct, as she'll get the least showy performances out of both actors that tend to show off or characters that beg actors to give show-stopping performances. And for the former, Max specifically cites Cuba Gooding Jr., who appears briefly as civil rights attorney Fred Gray, and Giovanni Ribisi as LBJ advisor Lee White. They've been known to choose some scenery before. They do not do it here. For the latter, Max cites LBJ and Wallace portrayed by Tom Wilkinson and Tim Roth. Number five, show the violence honestly without ever lingering too much on the brutality, instead showcasing how it affects the people and how they'll have to adapt or not. The first go at the March to Montgomery, with Alabama state troopers repelling the peaceful marchers with clubs and tear gas, is a harrowing but arguably unexcessive sequence. And number six, 
when dealing with questions of whether or not the film's noble center was a flawed man, don't dodge the issue. Show how it hurt the people around them. At the same time, show how it's just one facet, not an all-consuming problem, and that it's insignificant compared to the work he did. In Selma, the issue is King's philandering, which DuVernay deftly weaves into the story without exploiting for dramatic fireworks. Now, Josh, Max's fifth point about depicting violence is pretty specific to Selma, but how do you rate his rules overall? Would audiences be better served if filmmakers applied them to all biopics, which are almost always about noble characters and causes to some degree, otherwise they wouldn't get made? If so, does Selma effectively follow these rules? Yeah, I think these are good rules to follow. They probably work better for some figures than others. But in general, what they're getting away mm-hmm. from are the things that we that you mentioned that also bother me. Yeah, the trappings biopic. of the biopic. So, yeah, the, those trappings that will earn awards attention. And this really struck me because we just had the Golden Globes and I ended up watching all of it. I really? usually don't. I, and we had forgotten they were on until 15 minutes before. We turned it on had the night free, we ended up watching it. And um, it was entertaining, but so many of the speeches were just pushing towards that, the reverential ideal of these figures, which, as you mentioned, is going to be a part of it. These are men and women who have accomplished something great. That's why we're interested in learning about their story or seeing it dramatized. But there's so much more to a human being than that. And the best biopics acknowledge that. And Selma falls into that category. So this is two shows in a row now for all our criticizing the biopics, the biopics that we've given. At least we'll see how you feel about it. But I'm going to be giving a lot of praise to a biopic after Mr. Turner now here in Selma. And Max hits a lot of those things that I would also agree with. Oyelowo's performance for me and the way DuVernay treats the character are hand in hand. And it's that he is not going to be the center of this film, even though he's the center of this story. This is a detailing of communal accomplishment in the pages of history, which seems to be true to what actually happened and also is a huge risk for a film to take. It was so remarkable to me that they included this these marches. There were three of them. And the filmmakers include the first march, even though King wasn't even there. Right. And how many other producers and filmmakers would say, we, we've got to either like combine these marches, you know, do an anti-Hobbit. Let's take the three, combine them into one really inspiring march. Yeah. Or let's just uh, fudge it a little bit and put King there at that first march. We can't have how many minutes is given to that march. Beautifully filmed, as Max talked about. And the main figure is not even there. What a risk that is. But also in the performance, you talked about the listening, how he's a listener as an actor. And we get so many scenes of King not sure what to do. Exactly. Or just vexed over the situation that he finds himself in, trying to find his way forward. And I'll just mention one. It's when a young man has been shot by police after a protest, and it's a protest King led. So a few days later, actually, it's when the man's body is at the coroner's office. King goes there and visits the man's grandfather. This one, though, is a case where he didn't lead that one. He was away. That's why Wallace's people actually felt like they could take advantage of the situation. That was the night, the night, the night, the nighttime protest. You're right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so King goes to visit this grandfather. Great scene. DuVernay lets the moment begin with King not knowing what to say. And Oyelowo plays that frustration, the lack of words, the exasperation. He doesn't know how he can comfort this man. Now, 
he gives some words. They eventually come, and they're meant yeah. to be inspiring, but they don't carry as much weight as those moments of silence. And and I will say that Selma does hit a lot of these beats. That scene has both beats. Mm-hmm. It has the moments of pause, and then it gives us the inspirational pep talk. So this isn't a movie that I would call revolutionary in terms of the biopic genre, but what matters to me are the things it does above and beyond the normal beats that we get. Mm-hmm. Even better in that scene, and... I didn't anticipate saying this, so I didn't look it up, but whoever the actor is playing, I believe he says he's 83. The grandfather. The grandfather yeah. in that scene oh. comes off as one of those actors who may not be a professional actor, and I mean that in the best way mm-hmm. possible, just a life fully lived. He's got one of those faces. Yeah, and just brings it to that moment. That really is one of the most remarkable scenes in the film. I'm with you on everything you said. I'm with you overall on the movie. I just don't quite admire it as much as you do or as Max O'Connell did. And I love the rules. I think Selma largely does get it right according to those rules. What kept me at a bit of a distance were those aspects where, and you touched on this a little bit, where DuVernay does, I think, fall victim to some of the biopic pitfalls. This is a beautifully shot film by Bradford Young, but maybe like The Immigrant, and we both agreed on this, maybe it's almost too beautiful at times. Hmm. I think you used a phrase with that movie like the characters were fossilized. There were times where I felt like that. With this film, Max's word pre-bronzed in discussing Martin Luther King literally applies to some of the shots in these movies. And I fully recognize that we have to take what we're given and not try to reconceptualize or reshoot the movie. But I did find myself wishing at times that the movie was a little bit more gritty, that there was a greater sense of immediacy without the distance of that really refined look, without the style unnecessarily elevating what already is heightened material. And that wish on my part What I'm thinking of is a movie that's going to come up in my top five that I won't spoil now. And it's not a totally fair comparison because that movie is really focused on the violence of a particular event and is compressed not just over five days or a couple weeks, whatever we see play out over the course of this whole movie. It's compressed down to one day. But Selma is so stately at times that I found it a little bit, Josh, at odds with the procedural aspect to it, with the people in the street, the boots on the ground, folks who are out there marching. It felt like that sort of going for Oscar refinement Hmm. in the overall look of this film. More so, though, than the cinematography, the use of the music, the use of the score is the biggest offender for me in terms of making it feel like an important Oscar biopic. It just doesn't support the dramatic moments like it should. It underlines a lot of conversations in this movie that are certainly well-written enough and well-acted enough that we just don't need that added importance weighing things down. We get it, but I really was distracted by that very often through this movie. I think that's fair. And again, I would not say this reinvents the biopic mm-hmm. wheel. Uh, again, it's more the things that it adds to it. And I think, you know, to support your point, you could talk about Oyelowo's performance because he also gets those worshipful moments. He certainly does. He does. What stood out to me were the other ones, right. which we get plenty of. But in his speeches, for sure, we get King as the great orator. Now, the the movie has to be true to that. And I love how they capture it. Two things. I love how they often will begin a speech with him rehearsing it in private Mm -hmm. and then cut immediately to him delivering it in public. It just it it brings together the personal and the political. It does. And I also love the cadences that Oyelowo captures in the way that these speeches often given in front of a church to people who are ready to protest and starts calmly 
uses reason, logic, and you can see he, he gets worked up the more he gets into it and builds up to this righteous fury. And then he kind of pulls back a little bit and tries to contain that fury, mm-hmm. but he can't. There's this wonderful tension to these speech scenes that make them mini dramas in themselves uh, as a tour de force single performance. But what are we talking about then? We're talking about Oscar type material and performances. So yeah, I I can see that you might have some reservations to those lines. As long as I am unable to exercise my constitutional right to vote, I do not have command of my own life. I cannot determine my own destiny, what is determined for me by people who would rather see me suffer than succeed. Those that have gone before us say, no more, no more. That means protest. That means march. That means disturb the peace. That means jail. That means risk. And that is hard. We will not wait any longer. Give us the vote. That's right. No more. We're not asking. We're demanding. Give us the vote. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new film Selma. Opened a few weeks ago in limited release, out now in wide release. I do love, I want to go back to something you said, the fact in the ways that it maybe isn't revolutionary, but does go against the mold of traditional biopics. You're so right about that first March sequence being probably the overall, it has to be the most harrowing sequence, the most significant sequence in the entire film. And King isn't there. And there's actually points after that where there's a good 20 to 30 minutes in this film where I feel like King is kind of a Mm non-factor. And as someone who's a little bit strict sometimes about narrative, I found myself wavering a little bit. I found myself kind of losing focus as the movie I felt was losing focus. And then what I did by the end of the film is realize that that's kind of part of the design here to subvert some of those expectations. And I actually really do appreciate that about the film and that the director and the writer are willing to lose not just the central character, but Martin Luther King for that long, including during that key time. I could see another biopic, as you suggested, shoehorning him into that scene, whether it was accurate or not. And We probably won't get bogged down here in this discussion of the accuracy controversy around this film or other biopics. It frankly kind of just tires me and isn't something I love discussing because I expect that kind of creative license. And I probably would have gone along with that kind of creative license had it been in the movie. I really do respect the fact that it's not there. You're drawing a line in the sand that if it had done this, it would have been out of bounds. And that's the problem with those conversations is you cannot set rules around creative license. No, that's exactly right, though. I will say that I'm one of these hardliners about finding it, like I said, tiresome when people bring up, well, I knew this man and that's not the way he should have been portrayed Mm -hmm. on screen. And then I thought about the fact that if it was me on screen and I was alive to watch it, boy, I'd probably be singing a different tune if I felt like I was misrepresented, wouldn't I? Well, I'll be sure to consult you when I produce the Adam Kemp and our biopic. Well, the movie about film spotting, which (laughs) surely is coming. This movie we've kind of touched on and goes back to Max and his rules. It's at its best, I think, when it's not just focusing on procedure, but when it's drawing out, you've hit on many of them, drawing out these little but really revealing details. And the first one that comes to mind for me is I think it's the first real domestic scene in the movie. There is a great opening scene in a hotel room where we don't really know what's going on. And that's one of the things I love about it between Coretta Scott King and Mm -hmm. MLK. But this is the first domestic scene at the King House in Atlanta. And he's having a conversation with his wife in the kitchen. And it's highly charged. There's some real tension there. 
It's related to how much he's away from her and the kids, the fact that he's going down to Selma, that he's going to be away from the family for a while. Not only that, the threat of something happening to him, the threat perhaps that we can already read into some of these moments of his potential philandering, I think is there as well. There's a lot of text and a lot of subtext to reckon with in this scene and many scenes in this movie. But I love, Josh, how while he's talking to his wife, he's trying to contribute. And he's taking out the trash Mm -hmm. and he pulls the garbage out like we all do. And he sets it over by the door so he can take it out in the morning for the garbage man. And then he's looking for another trash bag. And while he's futilely doing that, his wife just casually reaches into the cupboard or the pantry where the garbage bags are and hands it to him. She, of course, knows right where it is. And it's this perfect bit of blocking business that you do need in some of these scenes where it can't just be them standing there facing off against each other or sitting down facing off against each other that underscores how much of a guest he is in his own house. And that reveals so much about that relationship. The other key one for me is a scene with LBJ played, as we mentioned, by Tom Wilkinson, where he's sitting across from Dylan Baker's J. Edgar Hoover. And I think it's the only time we see J. Edgar Hoover in this movie. It's pretty early on in the film. Martin Luther King has come to the White House and made some demands, it seems, on LBJ, and he's not exactly happy with that. He's talking to Hoover, and Hoover, it seems a little bit befuddled as to why LBJ is being so sensitive with MLK and why he's being so careful, like Mm -hmm. he's wearing kid gloves. And he finally basically says, you know, we can take care of him, right? (laughs) Like, we basically have the ability to make whatever we want happen to him happen. And I wish I had written it down, but his line is something like, There are always ways to take down people in power. And Wilkinson's reaction, it's his best moment in the film by far. This pause, it's so loaded because you can almost see him gulping in the scene because it's a moment of recognition. I think, Josh, where as I talk about subtext and text colliding here, it could be him reacting to Hoover's complete disregard for MLK as a person, sort of being taken aback by that, how just blatantly Hoover sees him as a pawn. Could even be in that moment thinking about times perhaps where LBJ himself has been part of or the catalyst for such a takedown of someone in power. The one I prefer to think of, though, is LBJ thinking, Could be wait a second, exactly. I'm the <laughs> yeah. most powerful man right. in not only the United States, arguably the world. What do you have on me? How easily could the tables turn on me and I'm the one being taken down? And the fact that Paul Webb and Duvernay make time for those kind of moments that infuse all of this with much more than just being ever kind of a greatest hits of MLK and the Selma March. You just don't get that because you get those kind of really intricate, revealing personal details. Yeah, I will say in general, I think the White House scenes didn't carry the sort of verve and immediacy that for comparison, they did in Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. Hmm. Um, and, and I don't mean, agree. I don't mean because of Lincoln, but just the politicking and that aspect of it. When we were away from Lincoln and hearing some of the strategizing and the mm-hmm. logistics, it was a little bit more compelling than it is in the White House here. Now, I agree. the strategizing with King and his fellow pastors, that is riveting to see how that works. And this is another example of DuVernay's generosity and patience in spreading the story around a little bit is that we come to know these pastors that he's involved with. We come to know this student group Mm -hmm. who has already been in Selma and is angry that King's coming in with his guys on their turf, what they've been working for for a while. Yeah. Now they're going to take it over. That Those are sort of, again, intricacies and layers and levels that a movie 
would normally get rid of because it just presents challenges? Why do we need these complications? Let's just simplify things, dumb them down, and make it easier to get on board with the people we want to be heroes. No, here in Selma, we understand some of the squabbling that went on and the agendas that were opposing. And that just, for me, makes it a much richer film. And what we get also then, it goes back to this communal spirit that I was talking about. Think about the faces and the characters who register even if we don't always get their full names. You mentioned the grandfather in the morgue Mm -hmm. and how much he resonates. Oprah Winfrey gets a pretty small part here, but it is a crucial one as Annie Lee Cooper, a woman who tried to register to vote a number of times and was turned away for technicalities. She shows up at the protest. We get just enough of her story to recognize her. We see a priest from Boston who comes once King has put the call out to the nation that it's on your conscience, too, to come support us. And this Boston priest arrives. James Reeb. James Reeb. I Googled James Reeb after this. I Googled the woman who we find out at the end it. of the film. I couldn't keep myself exactly. from learning more about these people because and we were how shown. revealing. How revealing yeah. is that, that they make that much of an impact? And when they march down that bridge, it's not just King's face we know. Mm-hmm. It's... At least six or seven others. We can see in the same frame, we know their experiences, we know their story. And for me, that's really telling in how rich this is as a biopic. I love the way you put it, sort of the collision in this film of the personal and the political. And I talked about briefly the opening scene of this movie. That's a good example of that, too, in the sense that it's very sneaky, in opening on Martin Luther King, who we bring certain baggage to, obviously, as we come into the theater, sure. but we see him, he's clearly in a hotel room, he's getting ready for some kind of an event and a speech, and he talks a little bit about what he's wearing, and it looks very formal, but at the same time, I don't know about you, I had no idea where they were. They right. could have been anywhere in the world, I assumed they were somewhere in the United States, and he could have been going out to talk to any group of people, frankly, about any topic. And then what is eventually revealed is that... He's accepting the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm -hmm. This is him, you would think, being shown at the height of his power, the height of his esteem anyway. But we also know because of that beginning, that conversation with his wife, the things they talk about, the really personal nature of those conversations and his kind of concerns that seem maybe a little bit petty in that moment against the backdrop of accepting this Nobel Prize, we know that this isn't really going to change anything. Even the Nobel ceremony itself is really sort of mild and subdued and doesn't feel like this is what would be in a lot of cases the end the of the final movie. scene. This would be the end of right. the MLK movie yes. when everybody stands up and applauds and this is the recognition for all of the great things he's done. This movie just quietly begins with that mm-hmm. and says he's going to struggle because we're always going to have this sort of personal versus the political. And another key scene of that, Josh, where that collides, I think, as we talk about strategy and all these characters talking about how we're going to approach these scenarios and get what we want, it applies to a lot of those domestic scenes as well. And we've touched on a few of them so far, but there is a scene later in this film where his wife confronts him about, let's say, his extramarital activity, which otherwise isn't really shown. It's just in the glances and some of the hurt looks and exchanges that they have as a married couple. And she says something to him where in that moment, he has to deliberate, just like he's deliberated so many times before in this film, but in these political moments. He has to decide, is he going to categorically deny? Is he going to lie to his wife? Is he falling for some kind of trap that she's setting him up for? Or is this no trap at all, but it's one of those honest exchanges that... He has to have with her if they're going to have any future together. And so 
the exact words he chooses to use in that moment are so revealing, just as there are so many sequences where those exact words really matter. But it applies to those kind of scenes with his wife as well. Yeah, that is a really strong scene. And Carmen Ijogo is the actress who plays Mm -hmm. Carter Scott King. And, you know, those are common scenes in biopics, too, is to show the marital side or the familial side and give us just little dollops of it. I think it's really effectively handled Mm -hmm. here, though. They don't feel obligatory. They feel central to who the man was and what his experiences were and how they created yet another tension that he had to deal with. Exactly. Um, and, And like you said, opening the movie with the marriage is crucial in how important the movie really feels it's going to be to this story. It's not just something that the director feels like she has to cut away to here and there because, well, it was part of his no. life. It's integral. No, it mirrors some of the activities yes. that are going on in the other aspects of the story. I want to close just by mentioning I have no grand take on this, but did it occur to you, especially after our top 10 films of 2014 show, and this came up a little bit, I know at least during my top 10 list, how many movies have we seen in 2014? Going back to just to name a couple, Mockingjay, the Hunger Games movie, Gone Girl, that are about the power of perception, of imagery, of mass media in general, and of manipulating mass media to get what you want. Get what you want by controlling the message. It's been such a common theme throughout so many movies this year, and that makes sense. This is a time when, of course, a march like that first day, going from Selma to Montgomery, it could be captured by television. And it could be broadcast to all these homes. And you know what? All these people across America, they didn't have anything else to do but sit there and watch that TV station. Or they had two other stations to watch and they were all showing the same thing, right? They weren't on their iPhones or anything else to distract them. Very different time. But the fact that this movie spends so much time, there's a key scene where MLK talks to that student group, SNCC and other people, about the fact that it's all about perception. We have to get them actually to turn on us and be more violent with us if we're going to make progress. Something I never would have anticipated. It makes total sense, but I never would have anticipated hearing in this movie. Well, and it it shows you the level of strategy that went into it, that this wasn't an impromptu protest. This was the city was picked because the local sheriff was known that he would respond violently. They knew what streets they could legally walk on and where the sheriff's legal limits were set that he couldn't do this. So so the level of intricacy and planning here, yeah, learning about that was was really fascinating. Selma, as I mentioned, is out now in wide release. If you get a chance to see it and you agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Film spotting poll time when we come back, where we'll reveal the listener's choice for the best film of 2014. Then an installment of Adam Recommends on a Most Violent Year. Do you have your own theme music, Adam, or do you need to borrow mine? I don't want to talk about it. Stay with us. I told you but why? You Out 
Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Audible.com. If you aren't already devouring audiobooks, they're of course great to listen to when you're doing whatever you do when you listen to Film Spotting, really. You're at the gym, you're stuck in traffic, you're on the subway or bus, you're doing chores around the house. Josh, that's when I get most of my prime audiobook and podcast What are those chores? In. I want to know what those chores are. I do are. a lot of cleaning of the kitchen. Okay. You know, it's kind of the hub of the house. Yeah. I got to have it organized. And so, it doesn't last long, so you're always busy. That's the problem. I know. That's the problem. I hate the kitchen. For Film Spotting listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. And my recommendation, one I just listened to, three and a half hours, got it in pretty quickly when I was doing some traveling around the holidays, Matthew Modine's Full Metal Jacket Diary. It's about his role, of course, starring as Private Joker in Stanley Kubrick's 1987 Vietnam War classic. I think it's a classic. I love that movie. It's a limited edition book of his diary that actually came out in 2005. It later became an interactive experience for the iPad. But this new audiobook is the first time that you can listen to Matthew Modine himself narrate his diary. It includes some sound effects and original music. The sound effects part... Maybe just because I'm so used to listening to audiobooks that don't have those kind of touches, it was hard for me to really kind of not get distracted by. But loving this movie and loving Matthew Modine's insights into what it was like being on that set every day, which seemed like it was for an eternity, it's really fascinating stuff, including one little tidbit I'll throw out. There is some real interesting stories about the relationship he has with Vincent D'Onofrio during the filming of Full Metal Jacket, of course. He's the one guy who's tasked with taking care of right. Private Pile. And they were friends in real life. And actually, D'Onofrio got the role because Modine recommended him to Kubrick because huh. he couldn't cast the role. And he threw out this name of a friend of his. He ended up getting the part. Obviously, they're both really good in the movie. But whether it was Kubrick or some other forces at work, their relationship ended up being one that kind of mirrored the relationship in the movie, getting really, really fractured to the point where they almost came to blows on set. But it informed their performance, and I think you can see that on screen. So if that sounds like something that might be up your alley, you can download Matthew Modine's Full Metal Jacket Diary for free or another audiobook of your choice by going to audiblepodcast.com film. That's audiblepodcast.com film. Hello, everybody. Good morning. And welcome to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. I'm Cheryl Boone Isaacs, president of the Academy. Oscar nominations have been announced, but not until, regrettably, after we tape this episode of Film Spotting. Welcome back to the show. That was the Academy president circa January 2014, right before she announced, I don't know, maybe Barkhad Abdi's nomination for Captain Phillips. We do promise to share appropriate levels of shock and dismay at the inevitable snubs and oversights of this year's nominations. It'll have to wait till next week. I I'm already angry. I don't know what they are, Adam, but I'm furious. <laughs> Golden Globes, for what it's worth, they were awarded earlier this week. And congratulations, boyhood, Patricia Arquette. That's Good to see. really all we're going to say, though. You already talked about the Golden Globes my, more than I expected. You don't want my point-by-point -point recap of the Golden Globes? <laughs> Maybe for bonus content. Oh, exciting. <laughs> we will be devoting a show to the Oscars in February before the big night. Michael Phillips will be here in his tux and his tails. As he always is. Of course. Speaking of bonus content, we think we have some good stuff for you this week, or at least inspired by good stuff. 
A lot of people listening to the show, a lot of cinephiles, Josh, I'm sure they saw out there on Fandor's blog, Keyframe, Kevin B. Lee, really fine critic. He's been referenced a few times here on the show and a Chicago-based critic who somehow has yet to be on the show. We got to rectify that here soon. He took a snapshot of where we are at the midway point of this decade, something Without this list and without seeing these articles, I never even would have thought about, but we are five years into this decade. And he put together a video essay in response to a poll where over 300 critics responded on Twitter and various other outlets to express the movies that they think are the best of the decade so far, the best of the half decade so far. And the video essay is pretty remarkable. I haven't been able to really dive into what he's written about it yet, but we are going to respond to that a little bit and maybe share some of the titles that we would actually consider if we were forced to come up with a top 10 list of the best films of the last five years. So we're not officially doing this. We're just kind of taking the temperature. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Don't hold us to it, basically. So that'll be in bonus content. If you don't know anything about bonus content, it is a little bit of extra audio we provide in the Film Spotting app. If you have it for iPhone, Android, there's also a Windows 8 version. You can get all the information you need. You may even be able to find some of the bonus content if you go to filmspotting.net and click on apps. Got any friends, Andy? No. Well, why is that? I don't know. I just never really saw the use. Oh, well, you can play with otherwise. Lennon and McCartney, they were school buddies. Am I right? Charlie Parker didn't know anybody until Joe Jones threw a symbol at his head. So that's your idea of success, huh? I think being the greatest musician of the 20th century is anybody's idea of success. Dying broke and drunk and full of heroin at the age of 34 is not exactly my idea of success. I'd rather die drunk, broke at 34 and have people at a dinner table talk about me than live to be rich and sober at 90 and nobody remember who I was. Well, if only Whiplash had died drunk and broke, maybe we would have included it on our best of 2014 poll question. (laughs) Miles Teller there in that scene from the Damien Chazelle directed Whiplash, a film that came up a couple times on our recent end of year best of show. It was my number eight film of the year. I think Michael Phillips had it as his number four. We also referenced it last week. J.K. Simmons was among both of our favorite supporting performances of the year, a Golden Globe winner, too. He did win. I can report that he did win, Adam. <laughs> I watched it, the whole thing. I don't know how I would have known that without you reporting <laughs> that, so thank you for that. When we asked you your favorite film of 2014, though, Whiplash, it didn't make the cut. That didn't stop you from choosing it, however, which we'll get to in a second. First, though, Josh, the films we did let listeners choose from. Simple question. Best film of 2014 is, here's what you got, Boyhood, Birdman, Gone Girl, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Interstellar, The Lego Movie, Under the Skin, or everyone's favorite, Other. Josh, how did it come out? Well, I'm sad to report that my beloved Lego Movie was in last place with only 5% of the vote. Your beloved Interstellar, however... Only 6% of the vote. Right. Also, your beloved Gone I'll, I'll Girl. still take both of these Only as victories. 7% of the vote. Which one did you have ranked higher on your top 10? Gone Girl, for sure. Gone Girl's higher. Okay. All right. Birdman. Here, they're all right in a pack Boo. here. 8% for <laughs> Boo is all That's I have to say. Your most insightful criticism of the year. <laughs> the Grand Budapest Hotel. Okay. Gathering some steam here. 13% of the vote. Under the Skin received 14% of the vote. Other. The other category was quite popular, 16% of the vote. We'll break that down in a second here. But the winner was Boyhood with 30%. So film spotting listeners agreeing with me, Scott Tobias, Michael Phillips, and not you. Yeah. Well, you know, someone's got to keep this from being an echo chamber. That's it. All right. That's your role. Just doing what I can here. You're definitely pulling it off, Josh. As we said, Whiplash, a very popular other option. In fact, the most popular by a huge margin. The number one choice comprising that 16%. Nightcrawler, my number 10 movie of the year. In second place, Calvary, also in my top 10. I think it was my number nine. 
that's right behind Nightcrawler, and then Ida, which made your list. I had Ida, yeah. There you go. So some great choices there and some great feedback, Josh, really, here as we get to some of the thoughts from our listeners on what they voted for. Trevor from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Boyhood. Linklater proved that a movie can move an audience with small, sometimes mundane moments. No need for cliches or dramatic speeches. Watching the characters grow imbues every scene with an honest nostalgia that we could not have experienced otherwise. And it's funny, as responses have come in to our Top 10 show and all the boyhood love, I keep seeing these tweets and some emails where some of the detractors, whether they don't like it or they just don't like it as much as most of us did here on the show, they say things like, couldn't this movie have been made conventionally or if it had been made that way, would it still be so significant? And sort of the, the subtext of that is basically, are you all giving it a pass and loving it so much just because of the quote unquote gimmick behind it? Well, are you praising the process, right. not the film itself? Right. Okay. And I keep responding to these things. Well, we can't separate the final product from yeah. the process. It's as powerful as it is, as we discussed during our long review of Boyhood. You can't separate them. And why would you need to? It's like when people get defensive about certain movies and they say things like, oh, if it didn't have that director's name on it and had Michael Bay's name on it, all you critics wouldn't like it. If it had Michael Bay's name on it, it wouldn't be that movie. Probably not. I hate not. to get all touristic on you, but it simply wouldn't be that movie. So it's a complete fallacy to even discuss it. I feel like that with Boyhood. It is what it is because of that process, and I do think it's integral to the overall power of that film. And we'll never know how it would have played out if they'd cast three different generations of actors. But why do we care? Well, and the things Trevor is praising it for, I think, could have been done and captured if it had been made that way. Mm -hmm. But again, what's it's a fruitless exercise to wonder if it had been. Mm -hmm. We also heard from Miranda, something in the more logical side of my brain insists on boyhood for its ambition, scope and impact. However, as much as I love that film, the one that really captured my heart this year was Only Lovers Left Alive, so it gets my vote. It was simply an experience, akin to hanging out with the most interesting people in fascinating places for two hours. The choices of Detroit and Tangier for setting two beautiful cities gone to seed but somehow still beautifully shabby and all the more intriguing for their lack of gloss is sublime. That, along with perfect casting and a wonderful soundtrack, make this my pick. Yeah, I love this movie, and this was in your top ten my top as 10. well. It was so a contender for me, and the talk there by Miranda of setting, I think in our CFCA ballot, the category for best art direction, production design, that was my number one choice. Nice, I yeah. like that. For that apartment, particularly, the apartment, too. The way yeah. the city shot, the yeah. car, the garden, or whatever it is in yep. the movie, it's all fantastic. Very observant of you, Adam. Thank you. Connor Kelly says, though it's hard for me to argue with the grandeur of boyhood, the wit and charm of the Grand Budapest Hotel, or the edge-of-your-seat excitement of Whiplash, I feel secure in naming Under the Skin as my pick for best film of 2014. In a year full of incredible movies, Under the Skin stands out to me because of its abundance of insightful and visionary moments, as well as its staggering ambition. I think its greatest achievement is forcing you to look at the human world through the protagonist's alien eyes. The ordinary becomes strange and unfamiliar. The mundane becomes absurd. I can name at least a dozen indelible moments from Under the Skin that are still running through my mind, but I would never want to rob anyone of experiencing them firsthand. Suffice to say that Under the Skin has changed the way I look at the world in a very real way, and that's something only the best films can do. Well, Connor should also feel secure because Ryan Johnson named it what? His best, best film, film of the decade. decade so. Not just half decade. I think he's going the last 10 years. There you go. 
Dennis H., he also appreciated Under the Skin. The love and appreciation Film Spotting Nation has for my favorite film of 2014, Under the Skin, is simply awesome and reaffirming that this is my group of people. Frankly, this film deserves all the recognition it's been getting and more. As already eloquently described by Adam on the show and Connor's post above, this film simply changes how you view the world, society, our reality, in a way no other film this year has. Everything about it is masterful, from the unnerving music to the hidden camera technique to the just enough but never too much information about the processes of this entity. Truly a wonderful film. Well, we go now to a comment from a listener. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his name, Max O'Connell. I think he needs to get a cut of whatever profits we make from this episode. He's been doing a He's lot the of third work wheel. for this episode. He's the third host here on this show. He says, I rewatched my favorite film from the first half of the year. Oh, I forgot. I have to boo him, actually, for this, after all that praise. After both film spotting hosts shrugged at it, and I'm doubling down on The Immigrant. Boo. I'll do Thank it for you. you. No other film this year constantly redefined its characters and changed what I thought about them right up until the last scene. The Immigrant has the scene of the year in Marion Cotillard's church confession, the shot of the year in that breathtaking final moment, and the performance of the year in Cotillard, who makes Eva more than just a victim, spiking her difficult struggle for dignity amidst debasement with a mixture of self-loathing, guilt, and pride that left me convinced that there isn't a more expressive or truthful actress working today, something only further confirmed by two days, one night. I think that might be the only thing Max and I agree on, though I also did love that final shot. Oh, well, Max writes, at least I've got Scott Tobias on my side. It was his number seven movie oh, sure. of 2014. Pull out Scott for support there, Max. Also heard from Neil Comfort in Scotland, as well as being my film of the year, Interstellar also provided my favorite film review of the year, courtesy of Filmspot. You don't want to take a moment to boo? The Interstellar well, let's see what pick. he has to say. Okay. I, I think this is going in a good direction. For one thing, I was actually able to watch the film before your review came out, a rare treat for this Scotland-based film spotting fan. There's been a lot of generally good-natured ribbing on the show about Team Adam versus Team Josh, but here's the thing. I found myself agreeing with so many points that both of you made, and while I was absolutely blown away by the film, I think it's in no way flawless. All right, so he's got a measured take here. In terms of pure cinematic spectacle, Neil continues, this absolutely blew me away. But whereas I found the threadbare plot of Gravity patronizing and unworthy of the undeniable tension of the action sequences, Interstellar engaged me on an intellectual, aesthetic, emotional, and physical level throughout. I was knocked out by the visuals and the tremendous score, gripped by the implications of the time travel aspects. I didn't find this film confusing in the least openly weeping at least twice and literally bouncing in my chair to the point my wife had to tell me to calm down. <laughs> Only prior engagement stopped me from going to see it for a second time in the same week, and I'm counting down the days to the DVD release. Brian Gabatton follows up Neil there. This is all Team Adam, basically, even though measured there on your side as well, Josh. But he says, reflecting on this year in film, Birdman and Grand Budapest Hotel were the most fun. Under the Skin and Boyhood were the most creative. My favorite film of the year, however, has to be Locke. Oh. In a time when most films... <laughs> That's it. That's a moratorium on Boo. <laughs> Use CGI to achieve their scale. Locke relies on a single car and a single character to explore themes of control and pride, among others. Tom Hardy's powerful and affecting performance makes Locke my favorite film of the year. And among my favorite character studies of all time, HUD and Five Easy Pieces wow. would be the other. Come on. Now, come on. Belongs in the I same mean, conversation. Locke was fine, but we're getting a little carried away Better here. than fine. Two more here, Josh. Let's go with John DeCarly. One of the best films of the year, not mentioned on the show this year, is Godard's video collage on nature and art, Goodbye to Language. The film dazzles with a flood of remarkable imagery, an articulation of a purely visual language that cannot and should not be reduced to a single meaning. It is, after all, called Goodbye to Language. From the infamous jump cuts in Breathless to the layered superimpositions of Histoire du Cinema, Godard has made a career searching for new interactions among images, and he's found another startling approach using 3D here. I wanted to get that in, Josh, because to plug it a little bit, it is playing now. It's running most of this whole month. Yeah. 
at the Gene Siskel Film Center here in Chicago. We are planning to catch up with it, and we are debating. We'll have the car ride home to really discuss, are we going to fit in some time to review it here on the show? I feel kind of like we have to. There are some other things worth discussing. There's also Mommy coming out, the Xavier Dolan film, and this film, Goodbye to Language, and Mommy shared the prize at Cannes. Was it last year? Must have been last year or two years ago. So it's a case where... You could almost link those films together and do a joint review, perhaps, but that would also mean seeing both films. That, so That's true. We also, have a lot to discuss. Speaking of Kevin B. Lee, I think he had it as his film of the year, so I believe it was at number one. There you go. I think it's among his top ten of the half decade so far. So that leaves us with this final comment from Andy right here in Chicago. I voted for the Lego movie, but mostly out of solidarity for Josh. I mean, I also haven't seen Boyhood yet. Should I have even voted? Did I ruin the system? <laughs> No, Andy. That, that's just the sort of troublesome creativity that the Lego movie inspires. Mm. I like it. Thank you, everyone, for voting. One of the most voted in polls in film spotting history and also for the really insightful comments there on your favorite film of the year, which brings us to this week's poll question. We're dumbing it down. We're dumbing it way down after all those great comments, Josh. It's a 2015 preview death match. Okay. Because in two weeks when we share the results, we will be sharing our 2015 preview, looking ahead to the movies we're most anticipating. So you know how these work. You can only see one. You have to pick one. Usually the death matches restrict you to one or the other. That's it. Only one gets out alive. It's a face-off. It is a face-off. For whatever reason, we discussed behind the scenes. We decided this one really needed three options. Okay. Okay. So your three options are you can only see one of these films in 2015. Josh. Avengers, Age of Ultron, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, and the only one without a colon in its title. (laughs) The Hateful Eight. That's Tarantino's new film. Yeah, post-Civil War, Bounty Hunters, Kurt Russell's in it, Samuel L. Jackson, among many others, of course, that will round out that fine ensemble inevitably in a Quentin Tarantino movie. Now, really astute film spotting listeners will probably note that we've got Abrams versus Whedon. This is a little redo of that going back to May 2013. Whedon against Abrams in that death match. Basically just which director do you favor? He won pretty convincingly, 58% to Abrams, 42%. A lot of very passionate Whedon fanatics were bad-mouthing Abrams in those poll comments. It got a little ugly, huh? It got a little ugly, and I'm just wondering. They wouldn't dare choose Star Wars over Avengers now, Ooh. right? Right? Yeah, They're, of that's course, gonna, all voting that's Age of Ultron. That's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, let's see if they, they turn on that one a little bit. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. Josh, do you have a vote? Do you want to share it? Well, you know, I, I'm never worried that I'm going to run out of Marvel movies. So I'm certainly not going Good with point. Avengers. I mean, they'll they'll give us something else in a couple of weeks. So that one, setting aside, it's, it's tough for me in a couple of ways because I'm anticipating Star Wars. Glad we're getting more Star Wars. You're not voting Tarantino. Um, it, no, but I'm, I considered it. Okay. I considered it just because having seen Abrams Star Trek... I have some sense of what he might do, even in the teaser trailer that we got. But Tarantino is not, you know, I have a very tortured relationship with him in his last handful of movies. So um, Django Unchained was the last one, though, right? Which I liked Mm -hmm. quite a bit. So that's a good sign. So I did give it consideration, but I will have to go with Star Wars in my final vote. You're going Tarantino. No, I'm not. Really? I'm not. That's the thing. And maybe that's surprising because I don't have a torture relationship with Tarantino. Yeah. Basically, everything he does is magic. And so you're you're not going to wait. That means you're not going to be able to see the hateful eight. You know, maybe it is just the nostalgia thing and the fact that I do trust Abrams to an Mm -hmm. extent there. I think I may have voted for him 
against Weedmare. I was one of the 42%, okay. so sue me for that. But the fact is, because it's Abrams, I'm curious what he's going to do with it. The fact that it's Star Wars, even after the abomination of most of the prequels, sorry, Josh, yeah, I want to see it. I'm going to miss that cultural event for a Tarantino film. I think that's I can't part of I just it said too. that, but I th- I think I'm going to see it. Yeah, no, but you've hit it. Yeah, I, I don't want to miss out on it either. Okay, you can vote now. Filmspotting.net. We want to see how you wrestle with this agonizing death match. And as always, if you leave us a comment, please let us know where you're listening from. This is probably one you're going to regret. Excuse me? My husband's an honorable man. We're not who you think we are. I think I know your father. Good for you. Jessica Chastain and the only person who has more airtime in this episode than Max O'Connell, it's Selma's David Oyelowo in that scene from A Most Violent Year. He plays an assistant DA, I think, in New York City, has a lot less screen time in A Most Violent Year than he does in Selma. He's investigating the business practices of Chastain and her husband in that little house visit, the husband played by Oscar Isaac. In this J.C. Chander film, it opens in Chicago this weekend. And Josh, you joke about how I have no theme music for Adam Recommends. We could go back a few years. There was Maddie's Movie Minute, had a theme song. Yeah. The answer to that was Adam's Articulate Analysis. <laughs> and it had a it, great theme song. It did have a theme song. But I just don't want to revive it because it's so loaded. I mean, Larson recommends, you, all you have to do is be yourself and recommend something. You have nothing articulate to analyze. I have yet. to be myself, and it also yeah. says I'm obliged to be articulate and analyze something. It's just too much. It's right. too much of a burden. Fine. So I'm sorry. I want to set the bar low. How, how about something with like two notes called Adam's observation? I like it. Okay, I let's, really, let's really see like if we it. We can get that going. <laughs> this movie, A Most Violent Year, it's got an 89% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It's got an 80 on Metacritic. So obviously critics for the most part are going for it like I went for it, but I have seen some snarky takedowns of it, Josh, and some smart takedowns on Twitter and Letterboxd, and I really wanted to revisit this to bolster my case to try to give some weight to my measly observations because it's been more than a month since I saw this film. It was before our top 10 of the year, and at that time, I hadn't heard a word about it, didn't even know what it was about. I just knew that it was J.C. Chander, that he had done All Is Lost and Margin Call before that. I knew that it starred Isaac and Chastain. Right away... When this movie starts, I think anyone who sees it's going to be struck by the 70s Sidney Lumet feel to it, though it's set in 1981, and the 70s Al Pacino feel to Oscar Isaac's performance. He looks and speaks very similarly to a lot of Pacino characters from around that time, but especially Michael Corleone in Hmm. The Godfather 2, where they just have that same type of poise, where no matter what goes wrong or what they're doing wrong, they're determined to somehow exude some kind of calm and civility. There's always a little bit of a show they're putting on, I think, and in a way trying to repress something or restrain themselves. And Abel, the character that Oscar Isaac plays here, is basically Michael in The Godfather 2, Josh, if the family business that he took over in The Godfather 1 really was the olive oil business and not the mafia. In this case here, the business is an olive oil. It's heating oil. And that's another thing I kind of appreciate about the film is that Chander has to be the first filmmaker ever to make a movie about the heating oil industry. (laughs) It's not a thriving genre. It really isn't. Of course, this isn't really a movie about the heating oil industry. This really does mark a trilogy, even if it's an unofficial one by Chander, where He is showing us characters in crisis and capitalism in crisis. I mentioned Margin Call, a movie, as we've noted, I really appreciated more than you did. His 2011 debut, it covers 36 hours at a Wall Street investment bank as that 2007-08 financial crisis is really beginning. Last year's All is Lost with Robert Redford 
solo in that film, just him on screen as a wealthy man all alone out at sea trying to survive after his yacht hits a shipping container. It opens with a lament where his character says, and this is really about the extent of the dialogue in the movie, I tried to be true, to be strong, to be kind, to love, to be right, but I wasn't. All three of these movies, including A Most Violent Year, are about characters having these kind of stark epiphanies in these moments of crisis, having to confront their delusions about what they really stand for and what kind of men they truly are. I mentioned Oyelowo is in this film, and very good here, though, as I said, much smaller part than in Selma. The two films also share a cinematographer, Bradford Young. And if you put frames of this film up against Selma, I think you would probably pick out that it's the same cinematographer. And that's really, Josh, when I said I wanted to investigate this film again and see it for at least a second time, that's what I wanted to examine further because it's easy to just say it's gorgeous cinematography. It is. It's fun to look at these scenes and the way the compositions are framed. But really what are Young and Chander and the composer Alex Ebert doing to create such an effectively moody, subtle thriller? I don't have the answer. I need to see it again. But they pull it off. And I don't mean subtle in its exploration of themes. Some people have argued it's not subtle enough, but subtle in the way the word thriller really has no business being applied to a movie about the heating oil industry. And yet the tension is palpable in every frame of this movie. I should note, there is some legitimate tension in action in a great chase scene. It's not as intricate or anywhere near as intense as the one in The French Connection, but it does feel evocative of Gene Hackman and his relentless pursuit in that famous car chase scene from that film, speaking of 70s New York City movies. My only real complaint about this movie, Josh, is something I never thought maybe ever I'd complain about in a movie. It's a performance from one of my favorite actresses right now, Jessica Chastain. Mm. She's kind of one of those people who does no wrong for me on screen usually, but she plays... The wife, as I mentioned, to Oscar Isaac, and she comes from a criminal background. We understand her father may be a guy who's connected and has the ability to pull some strings and make some bad things happen in the city. It's alluded to in that clip we heard, and that comes out in this kind of ruthless Lady Macbeth streak to her that just feels like too much of a put on. It feels like she's insisting on her power rather than just exuding it. And I do think it isn't just on Chastain. I think it's a product of Chandor's screenplay. And I heard him just today. I saw that he did an interview with Elvis Mitchell and Oscar Isaac after a screening on the treatment. And he talks about how he's kind of paying homage to some gangster movies from the past. And she's this femme fatale. It feels too much like he's trying to paint her as a femme fatale. It's one of the things that seems forced in the movie, even though it doesn't necessarily come out that way. It does early on seem a little bit too forced key scenes in particular, Josh, where her emasculation of her husband comes off too often as just shrill rather than actually being a biting indictment of her husband. So that's that's really it. Otherwise, this is a movie I really strongly recommend. So fair to say Chastain didn't have the greatest 2014. I wouldn't say that because no. I loved her performance in Interstellar. Okay. So right, nice try. thought it was a little wobbly. Nice but... try to get that jab in there. Well, you're convincing me I do need to Catch up on J.C. Chandor, though. You're right. I wasn't as wowed with margin calls. Most people were and uh, didn't bother to see all is lost, partly because of that and partly because it seemed to come out at the rush of last yeah, year's did. end, didn't it? it? Did. And now yep. something similar happened mm -hmm. with A Most Violent Year. So definitely a filmmaker. It sounds like I need to revisit and reckon with. You do. When we come back, we'll share our list of the top five historic events on screen. We need the break so that Adam and I can have one more debate over what defines a historic event. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. Traveling at the speed of lightning. At the same time I'm in the 70s. 
same spot too. Mm-hmm. Boom was kept in about the same way you left in. But what the fuck is what you're missing? was 12 years in the making well d'angelo's got richard link later beat 15 years in the making the album black messiah released to much acclaim just before the end of 2014 that's our featured artist and featured music this week you've heard the songs back to the future part one and the door more information at blackmessiah.co we'll have a real quick donation segment this week after all the generosity of the holidays josh and we had some backlogged donors we wanted to get to. We can get back to a little bit of normalcy here. We have a gold-level donor, Larry, in Austin, Texas. Thanks, guys, for another year of highly entertaining and informative discussion about film. Thank you for that, Larry. A buck a show donation from Bruce in Portland, Oregon, who also thanks us for a great year of film spotting. He enjoyed the conversations. And a buck a show donation from Jeff Sangio right here in Chicago. He says it was time to pay the dealer. Another donation came to us from Portland, Oregon. We thank Joe out there, and we thank all our monthly donors. If you're someone who wants to support the show but can't donate right now, we've mentioned it before. You can always rate us on iTunes. That does help us get more visibility and new listeners. You can also visit our sponsors. Check out movie.com slash filmspotting. Check out audiblepodcast.com slash film. Even if you don't end up buying or signing up for an account, it does help us just having you give some traffic to those sites and do a little bit of research there. Again, our thanks to everybody who supports the show. Hey, movie nerds. Are they movie nerds? I think it's fair to say they're movie nerds. I mean, they're listening to film spotting. Well, in that case, we're here to tell you about another show you will love. It's called Nerdette, and it's a weekly conversation highlighting nerds of all stripes. It's hosted by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. We talk with authors, astronauts, even Oscar-nominated directors like Richard Linklater. If film is painting, time is the paint itself. So I've always felt there was a lot of open territory there. I wanted to cover all of childhood. My ideas were dispersed over the big canvas. So this idea I had of filming a little bit was the only way to tell this particular story, but it ends up this big time sculpture. Find us on iTunes and at wbez.org slash podcasts. Nerdette, because everybody's a little nerdy about something. Let me go. Hi, this is Lynn Shelton, director of Hump Day and Your Sister Sister. You are listening to Film Spotting.
Tom Hanks and Tom Sizemore giving final orders to troops in the anxious moments before their landing at Omaha Beach in Steven Spielberg Saving Private Ryan. You're listening to Film Spotting and Josh Saving Private Ryan. I think an appropriate clip to get us into this week's top five, inspired by our review earlier in the show of Selma, top five historic events on screen. Do you want to do the honors of explaining why Saving Private Ryan is the perfect clip to introduce this top five and also how it speaks to the difficulty we had with this topic, just in terms of defining what it is? Yeah, well, I don't know what this says about our cinematic approach to history, but if you look at a list of movies based on historic events, you're going to get mostly war films. Yes. For whatever reason, the movies want to interpret our history through warfare. I guess, you know, maybe the obvious answer is that there's action, there's spectacle. Right. Or there's, battles. There's movement, battles mm-hmm. um, that seem to lend themselves more to the cinema. But uh, maybe it also points to a certain warmongering in our hearts that we want to see on screen. So, yeah, we did decide to set wars aside because um, we didn't want it to be a list of just war films. Um, we've touched on that and could do that in a different way later. Uh, and it also sort of opened up the possibilities then to look at movies that do something uh, more like what Selma does is exactly. take this um, event or a specific period of time, a series of events that made some sort of historic mark. And that's kind of what I thought about it. We also set aside no documentaries. At least I did. Yeah, I did too. Um, And uh, what I considered is an event that had to register on the scales of history. So in other words, it wasn't just a based on fact story or someone's personal tale um, that was rooted in biography. It it couldn't be a small real life story. It had to be something that registered on the scales of history. Interesting. Okay. Like Selma, you mentioned that was our driving force here. So the focus was on the event and even maybe you could argue with some of our picks we'll see on procedure focus wasn't on history it wasn't about this happened in history and we all know this event it really was about how the movie dealt with it and maybe trying to find things that were a little more restricted in their time frame so to give you some examples as we're talking abstractly here some biopics like milk that's a movie about harvey milk malcolm x is his life story those aren't films that really deal with one specific event Unless you wanted to try to argue that they were about their assassinations, but clearly they're about much more than that. Bonnie and Clyde, some people noted on Twitter or argued for on Twitter. Badlands, a movie like that film, does that count? Because it's based, however loosely, on Charles Starkweather and those killings. That question we had to wrestle with a little bit. But for me, Bonnie and Clyde, again, not really an event. They were figures in history, but there isn't one thing we can just point to with those characters. Other movies we dismissed, a couple of them, at least in the Pantheon, that won't work here. All the President's Men and Dog Day Afternoon, the Sidney Lumet movie. One other little disclaimer, one other little thing I wanted to acknowledge, Josh. We talk about the Film Spotting Advisory Board, the FAB, a group of listeners on our Film Spotting Forum that helps us out. They've been longtime listeners of the show, and we have questions about what we should do on an upcoming show or need top five ideas, massacre theater ideas. They help us out. And one of the really smart ones, one of the creative guys over there, M. Robert Turnage, they're all smart and creative. But he really outdid himself here. He suggested maybe we should do historical moments you think would make a great movie or at least a good pairing with a director and writer. So I wish we'd had the strength and we had the smarts (laughs) and creativity to play producer here. But I'm going to list the ones he came up with. I don't know if any of these are rooted in rumors at any point in history here or they're all made up just by M. Robert Turnage. But I think they're pretty good. He's got Aaron Sorkin's story of the Bull Moose Party. Tarantino's Nat Turner, Tim Burton's Stanley Kubrick's fake moon landing. (laughs) That's good. M. Night Shyamalan's War of the Worlds broadcast. 
and Wes Anderson's Preston Sturgis biopic. Oh. I mean, that right there goes to my most anticipated film of 2027. <laughs> yeah. So I like it. Thank you very much for that, M. Robert Turnage, even though we decided to keep this much more simple and probably boring. Josh, don't bore us. Give us your number five. All right. JFK. Was that boring? No, it, it was pretty controversial for a lot of reasons. And I have to say that I don't think I've seen Oliver Stone's recreation of John F. Kennedy's assassination since it came out. 1991, I was still in high school. So I would need to revisit it if you want me to weigh in on the political and historical implications, which was a huge part of the conversation surrounding that film. But as an aesthetic achievement and a way of taking a historical event and throwing it in a cinematic blender, JFK deserves a place on this list just for how it approached history in a specific historical event. In fact, I'd say for me, it's the editing that is the hallmark of the film in my memory. And Joe Hutching, Pietro Scalia, they both won the Oscar for their work. Robert Richardson also won an Oscar for the cinematography. Think about in terms of the editing, though, that magic bullet sequence where Kevin Costner's Jim Garrison is demonstrating the unlikelihood that one bullet could be responsible for this death. So now a single bullet remains. A single bullet now has to account for the remaining seven wounds in Kennedy and Conley. But rather than admit to a conspiracy or investigate further, the Warren Commission chose to endorse the theory put forth by an ambitious junior counselor, Arlen Specter, one of the grossest lies ever forced on the American people. We've come to know it as the magic bullet theory. Unlike the frantic and trippy editing scheme that's employed pretty much everywhere else throughout the movie, or that's what I think of first, this is fairly conventional. It cuts from Costner to his courtroom visual aids, but it definitely moves among insert shots as we travel the path of the bullet so that we... We always know where we are. We know where we're com- where the bullet is coming from, mm-hmm. where it's going to go. Um, we have our bearings. And here's the key. Our bearings are always in line with Garrison's argument. And then comes the capper. And here we get to some of the, the flashiness of the movie. Uh, for most of the scene, we've been in the courtroom until Garrison concludes. And he says that the bullet is later found in almost pristine condition on a stretcher. At those words, we go from the color courtroom to a black and white recreation of some anonymous guy slipping the bullet onto a stretcher as he passes by. That's some bullet. Anyone who's been in combat will tell you never in the history of gunfire has there been a bullet this ridiculous. Yet the government says it can prove it with some fancy physics in a nuclear laboratory. Of course they can't. Theoretical physics can prove that an elephant can hang from a cliff with his tail tied to a daisy. So it's just this dizzying melange of fact, history, speculation in this one scene that represents really what that whole movie does with Mm -hmm. history. I was in high school and that movie came out as well. I don't think I've seen it since then, but I loved it. I loved it when I saw it in the theater originally. I'll see your assassinated president, though, JFK, and give you my number five, Abraham Lincoln. Not in Spielberg's Lincoln, though, in John Ford's Young Mr. Lincoln. And we go back to our biopic rules. The first rule of Fight Club slash biopics is focus on one part of a figure's life. This movie focuses on Abraham Lincoln's first real trial. And Ford takes some liberties with the real case. But a lot of it also plays out, at least according to the facts I found online in the movie, It's a July 4th celebration, and a man is murdered in a brawl, and the two men who get accused are brothers. And not only does Lincoln stop them from being lynched by a mob, he decides to take on their case for free. And the trial makes up at least the last third 
of the movie. And I mentioned the parts that are based on fact, his technique, how he ultimately helps these men in their case in terms of judicial notice and showing that the man on the stands who was the quote-unquote eyewitness probably really could not have seen what happened during this brawl is based on fact. But what I like about this movie a lot, Josh, is how John Ford gives us what arguably is, at times anyway, a sincere, almost loving portrait of Americana, but then he subverts that with this depiction of the masses. I mentioned the lynch mob. They are out for vengeance, and it happens a lot. It isn't just when they're after these two men because they think they've committed murder. It happens in scene after scene. There's a sense of an eye for an eye. There's a sense of total unruliness, and there is no rule of law here without Abraham Lincoln. He seems to be the only just man, except for maybe the accused, in this entire film. And then you have to talk about Henry Fonda as Abraham Lincoln. The performance, but specifically Ford's visual approach, his presence is everything. And I don't just mean his charisma as an actor that, of course, you expect from Henry Fonda, but really how he's framed. And Jeffrey O'Brien in the Criterion Collection essay for this movie nails it. He says his location in space, his relative distance from those around him, his physical stance, his degree of comfort or discomfort. These are constant reference points. We can't take our eyes off him. And yet there are moments when he's almost lost in the crowd. His blossoming as a politician, as he confronts the mob seeking to lynch his clients, is balanced by the moments of turning away, of looking into the distance or into himself. We seem to lose our heads in times like this. We do things together that we'd be mighty ashamed to do by ourselves. For instance, you take Jeremiah Carter yonder. There's not a finer, more decent, God-fearing man in Springfield than Jeremiah Carter. And I wouldn't be surprised if when he goes home, he takes down a certain book and looks into it. Maybe you just happen to hit on these words. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I'm going to depart from American history here for my number four and go with A Moment of Innocence from Iran. This was part of our contemporary Iranian cinema marathon back in 2012. Adam, you liked it even more than I did. But what I did appreciate about the movie, especially for this list, is the way it does hold up a multifaceted mirror to a historical event. Uh, That event here is a 1974 student protest against the Shah of Iran, during which the director of A Moment of Innocence, Mohsen Makhmalbaf, then a young man, attempted to disarm a policeman actually stabbed him and subsequently was arrested and served time. Then years later, this would be about 1994, Makhmalbaf was auditioning actors for a film of his and who shows up but Merhadi Tayebi, the very policeman he had injured some 20 years before. So they decide to reconstruct that moment from their youth with each man playing himself and the result is a moment of innocence, which is it's both their reconstruction, but it's also a documentary of sorts of their attempt at restaging this bit of history. The movie asks really good questions about why do we revisit history dramatically? Um, Is it for educational purposes? Sometimes that's how we talk about these sorts of films. Is it for nostalgia, just to remember, to revisit another time, an earlier time? 
or can there be something transformative about it? And you suggested in our discussion, Adam, that McMalbuff was probably after the latter. I do love that pick. Somehow one that was completely off my radar when putting together my list. My number four, I'm going to go with a little bit of Chicago history. The 1969 Haskell-Wexler film, Medium Cool. The event is the Democratic National Convention in 1968 and the ensuing riots. This is a film that stars Robert Forster, of course from Jackie Brown fame for most of us. He plays a TV news cameraman. He meets a woman whose husband died in Vietnam and she's got a son. And there's really a loose narrative there constructed around those characters. What ends up happening is he also discovers that his TV station is involved in some stuff with the FBI is they end up at the 1968 riots outside that convention. And what Wexler's doing is putting the movie characters in the actual events and kind of watching the chaos unfold. You've got fictional characters, but they're against a very real backdrop of this historic event as it's actually unfolding, which is really where all the energy of this movie comes from. With these fictional characters, with these actors, there are plenty of real people in the movie, of course, as well, just being captured as these moments happen. It's crazy. It's intense. It's inventive, to put it mildly. Reminds me a little bit, to couch it in 2014 terms, of Under the Skin in the way it mixes documentary techniques with narrative storytelling. And like Under the Skin, it's very much about watching, too, very much about voyeurism with one of my favorite final shots, really, in film history that features Wexler himself. More 2014 references just for kicks, Josh. It opens with an accident on the Dan Ryan with Robert Forster and his sound guy showing up at the scene and getting uh-huh. footage of the wreckage, <laughs> which makes me think just a little, a little bit Nightcrawler. of Nightcrawler. It really is a remarkable film that took me a little while to kind of wrap my head around it. But once you kind of buy into what Wexler is going for, that collision of the... The real with the narrative was something I hadn't seen, at least before I saw it in Medium Cool. That kind of brings us back to that process question we were circling around during the poll Mm -hmm. results comments, right, with Boyhood in that could a film have been made without the process they used? Could Medium Cool have been made, you know, I mean, we, de- we decided these aren't questions worth answering, but right. as you're describing, it, would it not does be make the same me think movie. it was just so crucial to, to what that movie is. My number three is From Here to Eternity, and if Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor has forever soured you on romantic dramas set against the backdrop of the attack on Pearl Harbor, you owe it to yourself to seek out this 1953 film from director Fred Zinneman. Consider just basic level, the upgrade in cast you're getting. I mean, rather than Ben Affleck, Josh Hartnett. Remember Josh Hartnett, Adam? I do. And Gagley. Beckinsale. Here you get Montgomery Clift, Burt Lancaster, Frank Sinatra, Donna Reed, and Deborah Carr. Not too bad. It is set in the days leading up to the attack, and it really focuses on the way these men are struggling to find their place in military society and how that changes uh, when the women characters do come into play. So, you know, if Pearl Harbor, if Bay's Pearl Harbor is all about the special effects and the action, as we'd expect, this is all about the relationships, almost to the point that I wondered if the historical event here is too far in the background to be included for this list. But but I think that it does uh, hover over them and just give this sense of, uh, of doom and foreboding that really infects all the scenes because we know what's coming, even if the characters don't. From here to eternity, somehow one of my big regrets, Josh. So I will be encouraged to seek that movie out because of your pick there at number three. My number three, we can talk about taking a historical event, doing a lot of different things with it. Here we get 
some basic propaganda from Sergei Eisenstein. Uh, this is Battleship Potemkin. The event is the 1905 mutiny where the crew of the battleship Potemkin decide to rebel against their officers who were, of course, keeping order for the Tsar's regime. This is a movie that I haven't seen since Intro to Film Analysis, I hate to say it, about 18 years ago. But I do vividly recall key shots and key sequences. For sure. And it's, of course, because it's a masterpiece of a film, but it's also because you've got Eisenstein utilizing Kuleshov's editing theories. He's emphasizing emotional impact over all else because it is propaganda and he is trying to hit you over the head with his message here and thinking of selma going back to our inspiration here and the controversy over how accurate it is i love doing a little bit of research today and finding out that the most memorable sequence in the movie really so influential and not just because de palma ripped it off for the untouchables but that odessa step sequence Never happened. Wait a minute. Apparently never happened. There's some creative license going on. A little creative license. A baby didn't fall down. How dare he? (laughs) I know. But if you're not familiar with those editing theories, which were the basis for a lot of everything that we see now, but really that emphasis on montage, that juxtaposition of images that doesn't necessarily have to be about continuity and really, in fact, isn't about continuity, all about emphasizing particular moments and, as I said, particular emotional moments and moments here of of real brutality on the part of the czar's regime and the cossacks here trying to keep order it's a film that's just remarkable if you haven't seen it it's one of those just kind of basic yeah basic blocks basic cinematic blocks that has to be seen yeah one of the greats definitely considered it for my list at number two i have get on the bus the 1996 film from spike lee now if you were to tell someone that this is a spike lee movie about the million man march you might expect a film of diatribes and fireworks. Uh, This march was Louis Farrakhan's call for African-American men to gather in Washington, D.C. in 1995 to promote black unity. Actually, though, Get on the Bus is a fairly genial comedy, and it's more effective the less political it tries to be. It follows about a dozen black men who are on a road trip to the march. And at its best, it's it's sort of like a rolling barbershop movie. This is full of rowdy debates about racism, homophobia, responsibility. And these are all argued fitfully, passionately, derisively, uh, and almost always hilariously. The cast is a lot of fun, too. You've got Andre Brower, Bernie Mac, Ossie Davis, Charles S. Dutton, and Wendell Pierce, who happens to make a mark in Selma. Mm. I'm not a Lee completist, unfortunately. I wish I was. But really, of the many of his that I have seen, I'd put Get on the Bus towards the top, even though it's not one that people talk about too Hmm. much. Listening to Film Spotting, we're sharing our top five historic events. 
You just heard Josh's number two, Spike Lee's Get on the Bus. My number two is the movie that I referenced during our Selma review earlier in the show. The movie, maybe I found myself longing a little bit for someone to be a little bit more alike. And it's appropriate because it's another movie that's based on a civil rights march. Also appropriate, just learned this about an hour before we sat down here, Josh, but that first march from Selma to Montgomery that we see depicted in Selma is often referred to actually as Bloody Sunday. And Bloody Sunday, the Paul Greengrass movie, is my number two film. The event in question is often referred to as the Bogside Massacre. They were shootings in Derry, Northern Ireland on January 30th, 1972. There is this march planned, supposed to be peaceful, but just like the peaceful march in Selma that we see, there is inevitably a clash here between members of the British Army and some of the marchers. Thirteen of the protesters died. One later died. There were no soldiers killed in the conflict. And if you wanted to kind of sum up this movie, Josh, it is Selma, but with a Haskell Wexler medium cool type eye. Hmm. Greengrass uses some of those documentary techniques to put you there in the center of every heated moment of this conflict with his kind of trademark by now, I guess, handheld camera. The leader of this march is Ivan Cooper, the real-life character played wonderfully by James Nesbitt. And it's interesting how he does, Greengrass does try to show both sides of it as we talk about propaganda, insofar as, unlike a movie like Selma, which really only cuts to the state troopers to show us what they're going to do next. It doesn't really give us kind of their side on it, except for a few backroom office scenes with Wallace and one of the leaders of the state troopers. This is a movie where we go inside those rooms. We hear what the British officers are saying, what the commanding officers are saying about what to expect from this day and how to behave in those moments. But it's very clearly Greengrass's intention to show us those scenes So he can set up the fact that this really was a massacre, even though it's been covered up or the British later tried to sell it a different way and put the blame on the protesters. Greengrass certainly isn't having any of that. And he takes us in those rooms to kind of show us what in his mind was exactly said, maybe to cover some of the other films in this top five, the way Oliver Stone decides to show us what maybe he thinks really happened in JFK. This is a movie that, Intense is putting it mildly. The whole film is a tinderbox. You're just waiting for, despite the best attempts of characters like Ivan Cooper, for everything to blow. And when it does, it does. Paul Greengrass's United 93, another film that I considered for this list of his. All right. At number one, well, one of my top 25 films of all time happens to be a recreation of a historic event. Top 25 of all time. Remember we did this? We listed these? We did... Our top 10 sight and sound, and then we did the others just on a list. We didn't talk about them on the show. I can't wait. You can't guess? The event is the 1431 heresy trial of Joan of Arc. The Passion of Joan of Arc. Yeah. Great pick. There you go. Yeah, I decided to go that way instead of the uh, 99 Luke Besson Mia Jovovich (laughs) messenger. Thought this would be a little bit more more respectable. Lighten up. This is Carl Dreyer's 1928 silent masterpiece and has the riveting Maria Falconetti in the title role. It is interesting to consider this film in light of this list as a historical document because it's so iconic. I hadn't thought of it that way before at all in terms of how it handled history. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, part of that is probably because it doesn't seem to be taking place on Earth thanks to Falconetti's performance. It's just transcendent. There are those times when she seems to be looking right through her accusers toward the heaven in which she resolutely believes. But 
it does work as a document, rethinking it through this lens. And it actually also reminded me a little bit of JFK in the way we see how Dreyer wants us to experience this and to perceive what was happening, especially when you look at the trial and all the close-ups of these grotesque characters who make up Jones' accusers. We get the guy who peruses his fingernails with this abhorrent indifference. We get this other guy who grins while he's got these horn-like shocks of hair. And there's the one close-up of the warts that are dotting the face of another interrogator as he glowers over her from his perch. So all of this, of course, is to engender sympathy for Joan. And the movie itself, you know, it's a heightened experience in many ways, Mm -hmm. but um, it even works as a historical document. It still has that sort of heightened power to it. Man, if I didn't love my number one choice as much as I do, I'd just throw it out and throw in The Passion of Joan of Arc. (laughs) That's how good your pick is. This is going to be good then. I don't know if it's as good as The Passion of Joan of Arc, but for me it is, and there is a certain nostalgia factor here. And it's the only one that's a little bit of a cheat for me, Josh. And as I said, it was important for me to try to pick events. And an event is usually something that has kind of a a time period that you can isolate right. and look at, usually over days, months, maybe a year. The event in question for my number one is actually about a four-year period. Okay. The event is Project Mercury. The movie is the right stuff. Oh, the yeah. film from Philip Kaufman. That works. Of course, the U.S. trying to put the first human in space late to the party after the Russians beat him there. But the first seven astronauts in space are what the right stuff captures. And really, I had no choice here, Josh. We put this out on Twitter. We said, any help with this top five you can give us? What movies should we consider? None other than Ryan Johnson, a guy who is making episode eight of Star Wars, right away said the right stuff. And I'm really here to just do whatever Ryan wants. So <laughs> I I'm understand with that. I adore this movie. He did also make a great reference. There was much talk about this at the time when that announcement came out about star wars and right. him coming into the project he tweeted out a link to a great scene great line very funny from the right stuff so that was great by ryan and he's not the only wonderful filmmaker who appreciates this movie none other than christopher nolan josh says you can't pretend 2001 doesn't exist when you're making interstellar but the other film i'd have to point to is the right stuff I screened a print of it for the crew before we started because that's a film that not enough people have seen on the big screen. It's an almost perfectly made film. It's one of the great American movies, and people don't quite realize how great it is, probably because it's four hours long. Until I saw that quote today, I had forgotten that it's that long, and maybe it's not even four hours long, but it's easily over three hours long, and I knew it was a quote-unquote long movie. But Josh, I watched it so many times as a young boy and was so enthralled with it that the length of the film was never an issue. Hmm. I couldn't get enough of this movie, of space, of jets, just flying around in general. And I like to think that maybe I was into that stuff and I found something in the right stuff that I appreciated. I actually think the right stuff is what made me love thinking about jets and the Air Force and thinking about going into space and all those kind of things that a lot of young boys do. I think it was the movie, not my interest in it inherently before that. The relationships in the film, the camaraderie of those seven astronauts, the conflicts between them and their egos was something that as an eight, nine, ten-year-old kid, there was just enough mystery in it and enough of that kind of, this is an adult thing I don't really totally grasp, but I want to understand it. And that just drew me in even more. The mysterious Chuck Yeager here as well. The movie opens with him and it goes back to him frequently played by Sam Shepard. So great. Even though he wasn't one of the Mercury Seven and didn't want to be, I love that aspect of the film that Tom Wolfe, the writer of the book, and of course Philip Kaufman, the director, couldn't make a movie about these types of egos and these types of men and the envelopes they pushed without including 
Chuck Yeager. You look at the cast, Dennis Quaid, always been one of my favorite actors ever since his performance as Gordo Cooper in this movie. Sam Shepard, as I mentioned, Ed Harris, Fred Ward, Levon Helm, the great Levon Helm from the band, narrates and appears briefly in the film. I could go on and on. The one thing I did want to add is that it's funny. One of the things that always sort of traumatized me about the movie as a kid is Gus Grissom. Fred Ward plays him. He's the second astronaut in space. And something goes wrong when he lands. His capsule blows and it sinks and they lose all the data and it's kind of a wasted trip to space in some ways. And the way the movie depicts it, I was just always crushed. I felt so bad for him. I felt so bad for his wife. She doesn't get to go meet Jackie at the White House. It was just a case where I couldn't believe that this man who had accomplished everything he needed to accomplish to go up in space would panic in this moment and something would go wrong. It seemed like he was being blamed for it. Again, doing a little bit of research today, turns out that by the time this film was made, most experts had decided that Gus Grissom really didn't do anything wrong. And Gus Grissom famously died later in one of the Apollo missions. You have to think if he had done something wrong back during the Mercury 7, why would they keep using him? Right. But he had basically been exonerated. And Wolf's book is really about how some NASA people, friends, even down to his wife, never did fully seem to believe him or mm. had never really bought his side of the story and so the movie is really about that and it turns out again as we talk about creative license and how we depict historical events i don't know that always just stuck out to me as one of those sequences in the movie that i've always remembered and i've always felt bad for gus grissom and it turns out maybe i didn't really need to feel bad for him i just needed to feel bad for how he was portrayed on screen and other people felt that way he had a lot of colleagues including gordo cooper wally shira in the film who were mad at the filmmakers of the right stuff because of how they depicted those events play out. The capsule was rocking around a bit, but there weren't any loose items in the capsule, so I don't see how I could have hit that button. No. I was just lying there, flat on my back, and it just blew. Thank you, Mr. Grissom. The right stuff, it's for me, Josh. I don't know about you. It's a Pantheon-level movie for me. It's made a lot of top fives over the years, but not in a while. And I looked back at episode 119 of the show. It turns out Sam and I had actually done top five true stories. And we both had the right stuff at number two. We had all the president's men now in the Pantheon at number one. And it turns out we had a couple rules about that one, too. Guess what they were? No docs, just like this list. Okay. No biopics. <laughs> Kind of come full circle then. We have indeed. Those are our top five historic events on screen. Josh, any movies that haven't come up you want to throw out there? Um, well, yeah, certainly all the President's Men would have been on there if it wasn't in the Pantheon. You picked Battleship Potemkin. Apollo 13, another space movie that uh, could have made my list. Hunger. I deferred to your Michael Fassbender love and you didn't go with it. Honorable mention. Okay. All right. Lincoln, we've talked about Rosewood, is uh, a pretty good John Singleton movie. It's a dramatization of a 1923 lynch mob attack on a flourishing black community. Thought about that one, 13 Days, about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and one more here, Hotel Rwanda. That's with Don Cheadle mm -hmm. as a hotel manager who risked his life to house more than 1,000 refugees from both sides of the genocide that plagued Rwanda in the 1990s. Didn't watch it. Never intend to watch it. One of those movies that just sounds like... It's pretty bleak. Yeah, I'll never have the time. I'll never, I'll never have the fortitude at 10 o'clock at night to throw that in the DVD player and suffer. But it's honestly done. So. Okay. Well, that's the best thing you can say about most artistic endeavors, Josh. I don't really have any honorable mentions for once because 
There were just too many to choose from. If I started listing them, we'd go on all day. Think about how many movies are based on true stories or mm-hmm. real people. Hunger, Passion of Joan of Arc, you mentioned two of them there, definitely deserve to be in this conversation and many more. We want to know your picks. Send us your comments or any other thoughts about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting and at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Out in limited release this weekend, movies opening in Chicago. We'll just highlight a few of the notable ones here. The Gene Siskel Film Center is showing Force Majeure, a movie that got a lot of love on our end of year roundtable and deservedly so. Don't forget Michael Phillips called it a pip. I think just the I best review of the year. The poster. It should be. It is a pip. Michael Phillips, Chicago Tribune. At the Music Box, two days, one night, of course, from Belgium's Dardenne Brothers, Marion Cotillard, one of my favorite lead actress performances of the year in that movie. So some great stuff there. A Most Violent Year, a movie I strongly recommend set in early 80s New York City, directed by J.C. Chander. It got Adam's observation. <laughs> it got a few observations. In wide release, Black Hat, a cybercrime thriller directed by Michael Mann that nobody seems to care about. Just got buried in January. Yeah, I haven't heard a lot about it. Are we considering tackling this? Is well, this in the mix? That's what we'll talk about. Okay. You know, we got Godard to talk about, or we could go with the latest Michael Mann film. That should with, have been our poll with question. With Chris Hemsworth. With Chris Hemsworth. I mean, don't leave that out. Yeah, Paddington also out, and still Alice. This is the movie starring Golden Globe winner Julianne Moore as a linguistics professor who's diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's. I can report Julianne Moore won the Golden Globe for that. <laughs> Well oh, done. you beat me to it. Yeah, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Clint Eastwood's American Sniper with Bradley Cooper as the most lethal sniper in U.S. history. That is out as well. And I guess we didn't plan this, but you can just take my setup for this week for Selma and recycle it for next week because we continue the trend of biopics. It really wow. is biopic what is season. That? What is happening? We're going to discuss American Sniper. And I've seen it. You haven't seen it yet. I have watched it. Okay, you night. have watched it. So I'm looking forward to this discussion. Okay. Wow, gosh, that what? means you liked it. That means you liked it. So I got to bring my A game. Why do you say <laughs> I got to bring, because you only look forward to the showdowns, Josh. Come on, otherwise you're just phoning <laughs> it in here on the show. We're planning on talking about it, and really the reason why is because we're going to kind of reckon a little bit with Eastwood and what he's doing here, and mm-hmm. maybe what he does in some of his other films, though I'm far from an expert on that, but we're going to wrestle with American Sniper a little bit, and we're going to share our most anticipated films of 2015, so our 2015 preview Two parts. It starts next week. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week is by D'Angelo. comes from his new album, Black Messiah. More information is available at blackmessiah.co. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.